If ever we needed to consider that maybe it is sheer madness to think that we're in control and that there is an expert somewhere who has the answers, this is the time. With our study leader Dave Wurtzen, let's look at Daniel chapter 4 and listen as Nebuchadnezzar, who believed he was king of the mountain, shares his personal testimony about how he discovered the true king. If ever there was a week that we should really understand that we're not in control, this is the week. Does anybody wonder whether anybody in Washington, D.C. or in New York really know what they're doing? Now, just think of the logic. One of the things that we're really wrestling with is that we take billions of dollars of loans that have bankrupted some of the major companies of our day, and Congress is debating that we're going to take on that burden as taxpayers. Now, something really concerns me when Congress is saying that we're going to be asked to make a great investment, and the very investments that have bankrupted many of the things, and I know it's very complicated, and so that concerns me. The other thing that concerns me is there's an underlying idea in our culture. Maybe you've looked upon your life. In other words, I'm going to work, and then I'm going to retire, and I've got all these 401Ks, and then I'm going to be safe and secure, and it's all guaranteed by the FDIC. What I discovered this week is the guarantee of the FDIC means that Congress debates and then they throw me the ball, and so I'm trusting in myself, and I wonder about that. One of the things you've seen this week is that there isn't this great entity out there, this thing called the United States government. Something I've been told, hey, listen, it's really secure because the United States government is behind it. Uncle Sam will guarantee that. How many of you have a little bit of concern that maybe Uncle Sam's guarantee ain't going to be so good? Well, rather than that being a bad thing, that's really a good thing. I just got my latest Time magazine. It has who can solve the present economic crisis. The picture of the magazine is McCain, Obama, and it has smiley faces on both of those. And then the last one is maybe neither one. And then you got this picture of Horace, what are we going to do? At the very moment the presidential debate was going on, our two presidential candidates talked right by each other. And Jim Lair, in fact, I, I'm thinking I'm going to vote for Jim Lair. Because Jim Lair seemed to be the only person in the room that really understood, hey, things aren't so hot right now. And specifically, what are you going to do about it? But we had an older generation that gave their answers and gave their memorized things that you've all heard over and over again. And then you have a younger generation that has a degree from Harvard and has his lapel on his suit, and he's very presidential. But the elephant in the room is, we don't know the foggiest idea how to solve the present economic crisis we're in. Now, I just stop and think about this. I just sent my kids away to college. When Josh went away to college, I gave him $2,000. I said, Josh, in order to really be healthy economically, in order to really keep everything rolling, here's $2,000. You need to spend it. 
because that'll make everything good. How many of you think I'm a good daddy? Now, just stop and think of it. You all have been taught since you were babies that the key to economic success is spend, 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 spend. And all of a sudden, the consequences are really hitting hard. And what I want you to understand is that as things really hit hard, and as maybe we're going to go back to the Waltons, good night, John boy, remember that? That great big boogeyman, the dark depression. I don't know what's going to happen. We might pull out of the present situation. You, as a taxpayer, might make millions, and everything might be honky-dory. But one thing I want you to learn today is Daniel chapter 4 says that it's insane. Now, get this. It's insane for anyone to be king, emperor, president, congressman, or you, and think that you really determine who rules and who prospers. We begin this chapter, turn to Daniel chapter 4, with a pagan king. And in order to understand this chapter, can you imagine if at the end of the presidential debate that Jim Lair said, we're going to close this presidential debate and we're just going to have a time of prayer because we need to look to the highest God in all the universe. Because we don't really know. We're in uncharted waters. Some of the most brilliant people on Wall Street have said that they've never seen this before. And so we don't know. So let's just close this presidential debate and let's look to the God that's there. And let's confess that we're prideful. Let's confess that we're greedy. Let's confess that we don't know. And let's ask the living God who down through history has set kingdoms up and caused nations to prosper and has put them down. And this is totally a, not a Democratic or Republican issue. As a nation, we're in serious, serious trouble. And we need to pray. You don't live in a nation like that anymore. But what I want to challenge you to do is to realize that as an individual and as a church, that's what the Lord wants us to do. And my prayer for you is that a pagan king this morning will be able to teach us, like, by his personal testimony, one of the most powerful things that you can hear is the personal testimony of someone that connects with the God that's really there. We've been looking at his life. We started out, Nebuchadnezzar is a great military guy. He controls the most powerful armies of the 6th century world. He runs the most powerful economic machine. Uh, money's pouring into Babylon. He's built some of the most impressive buildings. Wives, how would you like a husband that when he moves you from the mountains of Colorado to the plains of Dallas and you're very upset because you miss your mountains, he just says, well, I'll just build you a mountain. So right in the in downtown Dallas, he builds a garden mountain that is higher than the skyscrapers in Dallas. How many of you would like a husband that had resources like that? Well, that's the man that you're confronted with. It was called in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And this is the king. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. And we start out with Nebuchadnezzar's prayer for world peace. Nebuchadnezzar's prayer 
for worldwide prosperity. And I know that you laugh at the prayer for world peace. Every beauty queen says, what do you desire? I pray for world peace. I want world peace. But Nebuchadnezzar is really serious. This isn't just pretend. Nebuchadnezzar wants you to know that there's a living God in heaven. One of the great comforts I want you to know is that the God that's really ruling really is the source of prosperity. He's the source of comfort. He's the source of security. And one of my prayers for you is that we'll listen to Nebuchadnezzar as he finally connects. We begin Daniel 4 and we end Daniel 4 with this incredible call to give praise and honor to do what a lot of you just did as you worship the Lord God of heaven. Look how it begins. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the people's nations, men of every language. Notice he doesn't say to Bible churches that live in Texas, to Southern Baptists that came out of Tennessee, to those that that are raised in the Protestant ethic. Notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say any of that. Who does Nebuchadnezzar address his edict to? Everyone, every nation. One of the things I want you to really nail down is that this book is not about a sectarian God. It's not about a God that just loves you as an American. It's not a God that just loves Africans. It's not a God that just loves Asians. It's not a God that you can lock up in a particular group of people. One of the things that Daniel wants you to understand is that there's a real God. He's the living God, and he is the God of all people. You don't change your God when you change the language. That's very important to understand. Young people, listen to me. Because you are taught very strongly. It's the air you breathe in our culture. And it's the idea of pluralism is a marvelous thing. We do speak different languages. We are from different cultures. But pluralism goes amok when you start to think that different cultures change the God who is there. Because you don't. Nebuchadnezzar, this person that I'm teaching about today is a million miles away from me as a 21st century Caucasian guy living in Texas. This was written in Babylon hundreds of hundreds of years ago. And Nebuchadnezzar declares that he rules the world and he's writing out an edict that goes to all different languages. Our Savior in the New Testament has told us that we are to go and make disciples of Jesus of all nations. It means you need to go to China. You need to go to Africa. You can't just say, well, they have their gods and I have my God, and we we just change gods. Because you need to decide what's the world you really live in. And Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, is saying to you in this chapter, you can believe whatever you want. I didn't believe in this high God at all. I worship totally different gods. But reality struck. It didn't make any difference what I believed about the God that was there. Because he's really there. Does that make sense to you? You are in a culture that believes you can even decide what God is like and what he does. And I think that. And I want you to know this chapter is demonstrating it doesn't make any difference what Obama believes about God. It doesn't make any difference what McCain believes about God. It doesn't make any difference what the Prime Minister Brown in England believes about God. It doesn't make any difference. The Chinese don't believe in God at all. That doesn't change reality. Please hear that, because that's a major message of the true God to us today. And your eternal destiny and mine depends upon hearing that and understanding that and being really discerning to reality. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is declaring that I'm giving a universal decree, and he says, I want you to prosper. The younger generation has a marvelous sensitivity, desiring for there to be prosperity that is throughout the world, not just in a small segment, and I want to bless that. There's a great passion for sociological justice. That is what this chapter is about, one of the major things. But Nebuchadnezzar is going to challenge you on where are you going to find the one that can give you prosperity? Who's the one that can teach you how to have peace? Who's the one that can keep us from economic despair and an empty zero point where everything collapses? Who's the one that can really give us world security? and world peace. The ultimate message of this book is what? The stone cut out without hands. But does that mean that we just wait for Jesus to come back? No, Daniel's not teaching that. This chapter is talking to us about a pagan king that's the head of gold, and we're going to go through where the Lord is going to powerfully work in his life through one of his servants. And I want all of you to be Daniels and Daniels that leave this room and you go out and you influence the unbelieving people around you the way Daniel did. That you have great hope in what your testimony and the reality of the spirit of the living God living in you, what it can mean in a culture and more importantly, what it can mean in individual lives. So Nebuchadnezzar has a desire, he has a, he has a very legitimate prayer, which, which young people today are very exercised about. Bono of you too, it's very exercised about it. That is a biblical idea. We want there to be prosperity. We want there to be freedom from disease. We want there to be a kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is not wrong to pray for that. He declares this, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. Now, usually in the scripture, when we talk about signs and wonders, we usually talk, for example, when God delivered the children of Israel through the Red Sea. That was a great miraculous wonder. It was a great sign that the living God was delivering his people. When the the prophet Elijah was able to tell Naaman to dunk himself seven times and he's healed of his leprosy, it was a great sign. It was a great healing that declared that the God of Israel is still the God in Damascus. And he can do miraculous things. When John's gospel gives you seven wondrous signs... It calls them signs. The last one before the resurrection is when Jesus stands before a grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. And John wants you to understand, praise God, he didn't just say come forth because everybody in the cemetery would have come alive because of the power of the omnipotent Son of God. It was a great sign of wonder. It was the sign that was supposed to push you over the edge. You need to trust in the Son of God who's going to give himself for the sins of the world because he has resurrection power. But in Daniel 4, it's not about a healing. It's not about a wondrous, powerful deliverance. The sign that Nebuchadnezzar experiences is judgment. He becomes insane. The living God of the universe lets go of him to speak theologically and says the evil one can do his thing. The evil one wants to turn human beings into beasts. And so if the God who's there lets go of your mind, if he lets go of your health, then you can become insane. 
And the sign and wonder of this chapter is that the Lord takes the mightiest ruler of the kingdom of Babylon and the Lord warns him and he doesn't listen and he ignores it and he arrogantly defies the God that's really there. And the sign and wonder comes. He becomes insane. He becomes mad. He becomes like an animal. That's a really powerful judgment. We live in a society that doesn't believe in a God that will ever do that. In fact, it's one of the problems with our economy right now. Nobody believes that there's ever a consequence. And Nebuchadnezzar is teaching you in this chapter, if he talks to you and he touches your heart and he tries to convict you and I don't listen and you don't listen, there can be hell to pay. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants you to understand. He's now experienced the great signs and wonders. But before you feel that God's judgment is just total judgment with no hope, this chapter is going to end with an even greater sign or wonder that's more in line with what I just taught you. It ends with this, inc- this pagan king doing an incredible thing. In fact, all the Old Testament scholars say it didn't happen because no Babylonian pagan king is ever going to worship the God of Israel. Who would ever imagine that? And we can't find it in the Babylonian king chronicles, so it didn't happen. Well, I got news for you. I believe there's a God in heaven that's really there that gives dreams and talks and reveals himself to the people I least expect, pagans, people that I would never dream would get it. Maybe you. And I think by his incredible, miraculous, wondrous power, he can take an unbelieving, polytheistic, pagan king and turn him into a worship leader. Now that's pretty neat, isn't it? That's amen, isn't that awesome? That's what's happened to some of you. That's a story that God wants to do around the world. So how did it happen? The most secure, apparently successful people that you know can often be masking a tremendous insecurity. So Nebuchadnezzar, in the next part of the chapter, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. I was contented and prosperous. How many of you have ever had a boss that you looked at them and they looked contented, they looked prosperous, they've got two lexi? I'm not sure. Maybe it's Lexuses. You'll have to correct me if you sell them. They've got a home in Highland Park. They got another home down in Galveston, or they used to have one in Galveston. <laughs> They're contented. How many of you have ever met somebody that went to Neiman Marcus all the time, and you looked at their life and said, they're really contented and secure? Come on. Have you ever met somebody like that? Yeah. What all of you need to understand, now get me. Your culture says that if you're at the top of the pyramid, that you're in control and you're safe. I want every one of you to know that is insanity. You know that beautiful ad where you got this gorgeous woman, she's driving on the brand new Cadillac. She's telling all of you women, you deserve it. You're really in control when you can drive that caddy. I want every one of you to think really hard about that. Because you know what, ladies? You can drive a Volkswagen from 1960, (laughs) and you're okay. One of my methods to you today, 
You know, we might lose all our 401ks. We might. Gatlin told me we won't, but Gatlin has deceived me about other things. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but you know something I can t- say for sure? Is we're going to be okay. I want all, you know, I'm contented and satisfied because of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And not because of Wall Street. And not because of Washington. Praise God. And I covet that peace for every one of you. I really do. This is a marvelous, marvelous time to be confronted with who's the true king where real security lies, security that will last forever and ever and ever. The people of the world can appear contented and secure. And rather than you envying them and running your life to become like them, read and listen to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony because he said he had a bad dream. And in his dream, as you read further, it says that he saw this gigantic tree And it grew. In the ancient Near East, the symbol of prosperity was this marvelous tree, this big tree. And I have many other stories that are told about the Assyrian and then the Persians later and the Greeks where the essence of a dream is the idea of a vine or of a gigantic tree. And remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. That's the same kind of an idea that as you grow and prosper. And I want you to know that the living God that breathed into your nostrils the breath of life, his desire is for you to be born, for you to, to grow as a child, for you to be able, if it's his will, to find a mate, to be able to have kids. His desire is for your personal life, for you to grow. If you're a single person, he wants you to grow in your connection with other people. He wants you to grow in your place in God's family. He has an incredible plan. And there's nothing wrong with this idea of this tree that grew. Remember I taught you earlier that one of God's decrees for the human race was for them to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the wild beasts that roam upon the earth, one of the powerful messages is that there is a distinction between us as humans and the animal kingdom, and we are to be God's stewards over his creation. There's nothing wrong at this point as the tree grows. But then suddenly there's a watcher that stands forth, and the watcher says that Nebuchadnezzar, this tree that's grown, and Nebuchadnezzar, he, he get it. It, it, this, this dream isn't nearly as hard to interpret. You can get it. And this watcher, which shows us that there's a heavenly angelic beings that are watching over all of our lives. There's a supernatural rulers and supernatural beings, including the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. None of our lives are ever alone. They're never unwatched. And what this passage is telling us is that this watcher or this angel looks at Nebuchadnezzar's life, and then he declares the message of the living God, and he says, cut the tree down. As they cut this tree down, and in our culture, we take a chainsaw to do that, instead of just digging with a big backhoe and taking the whole thing out so it will never grow again, they leave this great big stump in this field, and they put a big metal ring around it. And then it says that seven times they're going to pass over until there's a waking up. 
Now, you've heard this story over and over again. Those of you who have been raised in Sunday school, so it's, oh, yeah, this easy. Nebuchadnezzar equals the tree. It's his kingdom of Babylon. And I want, but I want you to see that Nebuchadnezzar is terrified by this dream. And just like we've had all the way through here, he brings in the wise men, all the Babylonian wise men, and none of them can get it. None of them can really make clear what's going on here. And Nebuchadnezzar is afraid. In your own life this morning, if you're filled with dread, if you're filled with fear, then you're like Nebuchadnezzar, and so am I. And you say, Dave, how do I know that? Do you snap at people? Do you lose your temper really easily? Do you feel that you're not getting a fair shake, that you could really rule better than the other people that are around you? And it makes you, every day when you go to work, you're really angry. Anybody ever do that? Nebuchadnezzar was angry, but he was also filled with fear. That's what this dream is showing us. Now, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? The Lord tells him in this dream what he wants him to do. Look at verse 17. It says, the decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones. Declare, this is the verdict. So that the living, that's us, might know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he gives to anyone he wishes. He sets over them the humblest of men or the lowliest of men. The idea is that we need to be humble. Look at verse 24. It says, you're going to eat grass. You're going to be like a cow. You're going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass over you until what? Until you acknowledge, until you internalize and know in your heart is the idea that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. I don't determine what my life is. You don't determine what your life is. One of the things that we wrestle with is we grasp and we want to have instead of resting. And what Nebuchadnezzar is being told, he's being told that the Lord is the one that puts a person in this position. The Lord will decide on November 4th through you, so you need to vote. You're going to be a human instrument, but the Lord's going to decide who's in Washington. That's what this text is saying. The Lord decides, like in our own church family, like he decided when I came here in 73 that we would come and be a pastor-teacher. And he's the one that brought Tim to us. And he's the one that brought Bob Stanbury and others to us and brought our elders, brought Carol to us. It's all him. And one of the things that I really need to be careful of, you need to ask the Lord to give me humility and give me wisdom and help me to be on my faith before the Lord. And I want you to join me there because all the things that happen in our lives are his gift. It's because of him. Does that make sense? And if you find yourself snapping, if I find myself snapping at my younger pastors, if I find myself snapping at Mary, and I'm using myself as an illustration, if I find myself talking with my own son about the fear that I have about younger evangelical powerful leaders that aren't really exegeting the word of God really carefully, I can be right on the money about that diagnosis but I can become like Attila the Hun attacking Garrison Keillor. And my, my, my truth that I'm trying to reveal gets destroyed. Does that make sense? You saw that in the debate the other night. 
The older, Time Magazine put out McCain is like an older daddy that doesn't want his upstart son taking over the business. That's what they said. And I'm not just speaking politically. I'm just saying that's why they didn't talk to each other. So one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is teaching us, it's our pride that makes us afraid, that keeps us from looking directly at one another and really talking and really sharing and really looking to the leadership that God wants for us. That's what this chapter is about. And it works on a, a big Washington, D.C. movement. It works in my leadership within our church family and other leaders that are elders and all of us as a family. It works in your individual home. If you're snapping, if you're angry, you are afraid because you believe it's your kingdom, and it isn't. You believe you're in control, and you're not. You say, well, Dave, what do I need to do? Well, Daniel, when he interprets a dream, Daniel just is very upset. In fact, for several minutes, he doesn't want to say anything. And Nebuchadnezzar had to say to Daniel, Daniel, please tell me the dream. And then he interprets the dream and says, you're the tree, and you have prospered, but you become arrogant. And he says, this is what you need to do, and this is the heartbeat of the chapter. I want you to look at what he says. Verse 27. Everybody open and look at Daniel 4, 27. Look at it. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. When you at work are appealing to a threatened boss, when you're working with your daddy as an older son, if you're working with someone who's been angry with you, notice what Daniel does. What is Daniel's style? What's his ethos? It's humility. I want to ask you, why did Daniel stay quiet for such a long time? If I were to ask Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, how does Daniel feel about you? You brought him as a captive kid when he was 14 or so. Now you've worked with him for many years. Nebuchadnezzar, what do you think Daniel thinks about you and believes about you? You know what I think Nebuchadnezzar would say? He's got a weird relationship with the spirit of the living God. That's what he says over and over again in this chapter but he loves me. You know that convicting thing in this chapter? Do the unbelieving people that we rub shoulders with, that we work in Little League with, that we might be in courtrooms with, maybe it's an unbelieving husband or wife, it can be right in our own home. A really convicting question that I am raised by Daniel, that Daniel confronts me with, do the unbelieving people that I work with really sense that intangible thing. Dave really loves them. Dave really wants the best for them. Those left-wingers that are going to destroy our country, have you made them the enemy so that you no longer pray for them? So you no longer want to eat meals at all with them? You break off all contact with them. Nebuchadnezzar, he was a screwball, pagan, idolatrous, arrogant, angry, vengeful king. But he knew that deep in Daniel's heart, Daniel was connected with a God not only of omnipotence, but of powerful, redemptive grace. And he told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, 
I wish the judgment would come upon your enemy. This is your only hope, and this is the key verse. He says, I want you to accept my advice. Renounce your sins. Now, some of you say, well, Abe, I've renounced my anger and my manipulation. I've renounced my pride over and over again. No, you haven't. I want you to see a connection here. It's not just words. He says, I want you to renounce your sins by doing what is right. It's not what we say. I want all of you to know this. As you work with your kids, as you look at leaders, you don't just listen to what people say. You look at what they really do. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to turn away from your sin. That's what repentance is. And the way that we know that we've turned away from our sins is that there's real action. Jesus said, there will be many that will say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But they didn't do what I said. Paul's doctrine that you're saved by grace isn't a teaching that says that you give lip service to the power of the cross, that you give lip service to a belief in the resurrection, but there's never any concrete change. If you're a husband and you've been born again for 25 years and you still cuss at your wife and call her really dirty names when you're angry, be careful. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what's really going on. If you're a man that in the middle of the night gets on the internet and looks at things that you shouldn't look at, it's not just what you say. It's time today to turn away. It's time to connect with other men that you trust that will hold you accountable. It's time to be on your face before the spirit of the living God. If you walk in the spirit, it doesn't say that you will come to church or that you will sing beautifully it says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And if I'm fulfilling the desires of the flesh, then the Spirit of the living God isn't controlling me. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you need to turn away from your sin, and I'm going to know that you're turning away from your sin when your actions change. And then he said something really important. He says, you'll show mercy. You'll show mercy to the weak. So to go back to my illustration, if I'm a husband that exercises power over my wife and cuts her, the way that she'll know that real repentance has happened is that instead of abusing her emotionally, physically, or in any other way, I treat her with mercy and with grace and with tenderness. 
And in Nebuchadnezzar that used to be furious becomes a follower of the good shepherd whose wife feels totally safe in his protecting grace submitted to the Spirit. I use the home as an example, but you can apply that across the board. As we close today, Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. It says that a year went by. It says that all this happened 12 months later. The Lord gave him 12 months. I was walking on the roof of the royal palace. He said, is not this the great Babylon that I built? The royal residence that I built, isn't it by my mighty power? Isn't it for the glory of my majesty? Who's in control? Who does Nebuchadnezzar think is in control? I, 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 my, 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 my. And that very moment, the watcher of heaven says, that's it. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. He had lycanthropy, which is a disease where maybe because of depression, you become animal-like. His fingernails grow. He's seven years. His lords put him out in a field and just kind of put boundaries around him. That's the iron thing. But I love it. At the end of seven years, he says, I looked up. I looked up. That's my prayer today. I don't want you to look at Wall Street. I don't want you to look at Washington, D.C. If ever I had an argument that that's not going to be a very good thing to trust in, today's the day. But I want you to look up. And I want you to look up with humility and with repentance. And like Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to say, I'm going to let the Lord be the king. I'm going to realize that he's the ultimate source of power, of prosperity, of success, of peace. And I'm going to care about the poor, which is a major theme in this passage. If you're a governmental leader, what this passage is teaching, the way that you measure a ruler's effectiveness is that they bring justice in all of their decisions, And they also show grace towards those that are the weakest. And that's what the Lord's going to call us to do in our homes, in our churches. If we're an elder, it means that we need to shepherd all the little sheep, all of them. We need to get really exercised about that. As a daddy, it means like what it meant for me the last couple days is James and Scarlett. At 6 o'clock this morning, Scarlett was screaming. She's one-year-old. And I got to get ready to preach. And Mary says, you need to get her. She needs some milk. The Nebuchadnezzar in me says, do it yourself. I got to get ready with the milk of the Word of God. But because I was going to teach you this morning, the Spirit of God says, David, Scarlet's only one, and she needs her papa. How many times does she get to get up and have her papa sit her in his lap and feed her a bottle? The thrust of this chapter is Daniel, through the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, teaches us that there's a universal, omnipotent God who can humble the powerful and he can redeem them to cause an arrogant, prideful king 
to become a worship leader that sends out a decree to all the world. When our Constitutional Convention had reached rock bottom, after the Revolutionary War, after thousands and thousands of Americans had died in fighting the British, and everybody was fighting, Ben Franklin was not a follower of Jesus. But old Ben, probably in his 80s, as everyone fought, old Ben said, let's pray. That's what I want us to do. I pray that there will be believers that will have that desire. Let's get down on our face before the God that's really there. And let's humbly ask him. And let's repent, turn away from our sin and demonstrate it by leaning upon the spirit of Jesus to change our actions and to allow him to take us from the madness, the insanity of pride and cause us to have the sweet wisdom of dependence and humble, total submission to the living God of Daniel.